1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Eaton. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heath, and we are here to become better habitat managers through the people we interview and the things that we learn throughout this show. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, we really appreciate listeners coming back. Thanks for all the great reviews you've been leaving on iTunes. I'm sending some more free decals out to those who have been leaving us great reviews on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. You know, so go up there, you know, go on your, your podcast app and, and leave us a good review. We really do appreciate it. Uh, guys, we have a great episode today with Tony Smith. Tony is a Michigan native, a Michigan deer hunter. Surprise, we talked some more Michigan killers, guys, and he is a killer nonetheless. We talk about what's called the 700 Club, and this is your top five deer have to add up to 700 inches to be in this this club. And Tony killed all these, you know, top five deer in the 700 Club on an 11-acre property in Michigan. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, it's quite the story. We also talk about the 19 acres that he lives on and does habitat work on. We have a bunch of great conversations on some other things like uh, using topography and drainages when hunting a property, uh, CRP and sanctuaries. Uh, we talk about some antler point restrictions, uh, you know, family and friends. Um, we spend some time on cooperatives, how those can be advantageous to us small property owners out there, like most of our listeners are. Uh, we talk about the five stages of hunting, and then we talk about, you know, kids and, and conservation ethics. So it's just, it was a really good episode. We, we learned a lot from Tony, and uh, excited to get him on here. So thank you guys so much for uh, coming back for this. Now I want to talk about the Habitat Hook for a minute. Tony is also friends with the owner of the Habitat Hook, Mr. Nick Nation. We talk about that in the show a little bit. And this is a great tool for hinge cutting and TSI work, as you guys have heard me talk about many times before. Now, uh, be sure to tell Nick that the Habitat Podcast sent you. He's got a few different models on his website. 
at thehabitathook.com. Uh, be sure to check him out on Facebook. He has some great videos on there about some different techniques and, and how we use the hook. We also have some videos. Uh, my preferred hook is the aluminum extendable version. Now, it just helps you keep the tree intact and the hinge from failing when you use the hook. So imagine you cut three quarters of the way through the tree before it starts to, to fall over. With the hook, you only have to cut maybe two thirds through. Then you physically use the hook and push the tree over. And that keeps the tree alive. It keeps it intact. It creates brows and cover. And that's the ticket right there, guys. If you just fell trees and they fall over and break off, they're not going to have that same cover. They're going to come up with some great, some great shoots out of the stump uh, with whether you keep them alive or not. But thehabitathook.com, guys, I urge you to check him out. Tell him the podcast sent you. Next, I want to talk about Morse Nursery. Charlie Morse on uh, episode 72, the one prior to this. Uh, we go into great detail with him along with episode 38. Now, guys, Charlie is taking orders right now. He's already selling out of some stock. So be sure to contact him at morrisonursery.com or the phone number on the website. Uh, he has a bunch of great trees. Corey and I, Brian, we've all planted a bunch of his fruit trees last year and the year before and they are doing great so you know i urge you guys to check him out he's got some very cool oaks that we've talked about a little bit on the last episode and we're going to go into some more short informative segments with different trees that we haven't heard about or, or shrubs that we haven't heard about uh for wildlife so that is going to you know be coming up in the future on some of the episodes so i want to thank the rest of our sponsors we have packer max called the packers Spring food plot season is here, guys, almost. So be sure to get your $50 off any unit at PackerMax.com when you mention the podcast. 5-2 Outdoors. He's got all your PackerMax blinds, uh, everything there at 5-2 Outdoors in stock, ready to go in southern Michigan. And then we have uh, Killer Food Plots. It's time for the soil test. We're going to be giving away a few soil test kits very soon. So be sure to tune into Facebook and Instagram for that. Uh, we have the HuntWise Hunting app, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit as well. So guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get Tony Smith on the line from the 700 Club in Southern Michigan. All right, everybody, we are back. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have my co-host Brian Hallbly on the line. And a special guest tonight, Tony Smith from here in Michigan. How you guys doing? I'm great. Great, Jared. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Brian, how are you doing over there? Doing real good, buddy. How are you tonight? Rock and roll. I'm doing wonderful. Doing wonderful. I uh, get to talk uh, hunting and habitat with some straight-up uh, killers tonight, so I'm pretty excited. Speaking of killers, Tony, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are uh, where you're from, what you do for a living, if you'd like, and kind of help us paint a picture of who Tony Smith is. All right. Well, I currently reside in Vermontville, Michigan, which is in northeast or northwest Eaton County. And um, my wife and I bought this property, our 19-acre home place, uh, 25 years ago or so. Uh, with dreams of, you know, building a new home. And I had uh, two young sons at the time and wasn't interested in raising them and lancing. That's where we were living when I uh, 
met my wife, and I had my two boys from my previous marriage, and I moved her out here, and we've been living and loving here ever since. But I was born and raised in Ingham County uh, in Holt, and um, right now I work for a company called the Marker Board People, a small manufacturing concern in Lansing. I'm the general manager, and we make dry erase whiteboards. For classrooms, primarily kids like a lap desk type, you know, uh, slate for kids to use in the classroom, and been doing that now for I'm in my 18th year doing that, and it's uh, turned out to be a a real blessing in my life. Wasn't planning on staying there very long when I started, but almost 18 years later, I'm still there, and it's turned out to be a pretty good gig, and uh, got a great crew of people that I work with, and. And, uh, you know, calling family is not just a cliche. We're really a tight group and have a lot of fun doing what we do. And and uh, it's allowed me to do some, you know, chase some of my dreams of, you know, hunting abroad and um, that sort of thing. And so it's uh, treated us well. Very nice. So have you been a, a Michigan boy your whole life then, or have you lived elsewhere at all? Uh, I, uh, in my teenage years, my parents were divorced when I was young, and uh, my dad actually lived in Illinois. I went to live with him my freshman year of high school, and, uh, just before the start of my sophomore year, he, we packed the whole family up like the Clampets and moved to Idaho and lived on a, uh, 30-some thousand acre potato farm north of Idaho Falls, a little town called Dubois. Wow. Uh, just south of the Monida Pass, which is where Interstate 15 crosses over the Continental Divide into Montana. And I lived out there for my sophomore, junior high school and, and uh, you know, added some real perspective to my life, if you will. And and uh, after my junior high school, after the middle of summer, I came back to visit my mom and sister and my stepdad and course reunited with all my buddies that I grew up with spent my whole life with and and they uh you know started working on me pretty hard you know (laughs) but uh I needed to come back and graduate with them and catch up on all the hell that that I missed raising (laughs) with them and uh you know I kind of took a light look around at what my prospects were after graduation in Idaho and I thought you know yeah, I, I kind of accomplished what I wanted to accomplish out there, getting to know my dad a little better, and and uh, I knew that the relationships I built out there with people were lasting, and so I came back and, and with no regrets, and and uh, graduated with all my lifelong you know friends that uh, I'd grown up with, and and uh, ended up making a making a living here, and and raising my family here, and, and it's uh, it's been pretty good. You know, I everybody, I think, sometimes can look back and have regrets in life, and, you know, you can always say, well, I should have done this or should have done that, but, you know, geez, I've been blessed and, and uh, no regrets. That's, uh, that's well said, and it kind of strikes home. Um, we may not have talked about this on the podcast before, but my wife went to grad school in Missoula. And oh, okay. And my plan was, uh, you know, get her out, out there in school, and then I'll I'll wrap up here and follow her out and never look back, right? 
and uh, <laughs> here we are, still in uh, you know Brighton, Michigan, and and it, Michigan's a very special place. The older I get, the more I realize it. It's just uh, I always wonder if I'd be some crazy elk hunting fool in the mountains or or what I'd be doing out there. Who knows? Probably fishing too much, to be honest with you. Yeah, but it's just I was just curious. Wonder if you ever wonder about living out there, if it, if it wouldn't be uh, you know on your on your menu. Yeah, you know, I probably, I probably would have, you know, obviously I'd love to hunt, and it, you, whatever, wherever you're at, you're gonna hunt what's fair, right? I mean, I was shooting pickup, I mean, literally pickup loads of jackrabbits, you know, when the jackrabbit populations were up. I was talking about this, this this weekend with my brother-in-law when we were down in Florida, sitting around, you know, an umbrella table in the middle of the night outside drinking. Margaritas, you know, we'd go out and when the jackrabbit population was high and you could, you know, we would melt the barrels of our 22s. You know, I mean, we would literally shoot cases of 22 shells. I had a friend that I knew that had a pet bear and he says, oh, don't leave them out there to waste. Bring them to me. And when we showed up with an eight foot bed of jackrabbits that was, you know, a foot deep, he was like, <laughs> I thought you were talking about a few. And well, you know, Consequently, the bear was real happy. He ate on those jackrabbits, and it stunk like how holy hell for <laughs> for um, months. But you know, I mean, you know, I said, so, you know, I just I love to hunt, and I was going to hunt whatever was available to hunt. And here it was deer, and of course, grew up hunting, chasing rabbits and squirrels, and and you know, and then eventually deer and. Um, you know, that's kind of been, uh, you know, and obviously some pheasants when I'm 59. So, you know, I can remember the day when pheasants, when they were around and, you know, there was some pretty decent huntable populations. And, and uh, so, you know, had I stayed out there, I really, it was kind of, at, at the time that I grad was going to school out there, I was kind of, there was still some, activity going on with the Alaskan pipeline and I really entertained the thought of you know just I didn't have any ties I was young I had a little bit of a bank account from working through high school and stuff and I thought well maybe now's the time to go to Alaska you know I don't have anybody to answer to but myself and there's good work up there yet with the, the finishing up the Alaska pipeline maybe I ought to do that and you know that was kind of a fleeting fleeting thought and that never happened and uh Ended up back here in Michigan and, and um, you know, met my first wife and went to work at the lumber company. And next thing you know, I got two kids and, you know, changing jobs and hauling cars and making good money doing that. And, you know, and different things in life happened and, and uh, am where I am today, I guess. <laughs> Very nice. And Jared, he mentioned packing up like the clampets do you know who the clampets are yes i have uh heard of the clampets i may not be as familiar as you two gentlemen but uh i'm aware i'm aware yeah. Very nice. one or two words ellie may <laughs> <laughs> yeah you guys are more familiar for sure <laughs> not gonna lie well, was that the beverly hillbillies or no yes, yes it was yeah very good Gosh, lucky okay. Yeah, lucky. Uh, Tony's not. Tony's not kidding. But 
So, Brian, you were making a joke on me and the Clampus. Continue before I edit that out. All right. No, kidding. <laughs> Tony, you, Tony, you mentioned about hunting abroad. Um, tell us a little more about some of your other hunting adventures outside of Michigan. Yeah, you know, it, uh, you guys, I'm sure you guys know Chad Chrysler. Uh, I, I don't know if you've had Chad on the show or not. He's been on some. I know he was been on some of the Wired Hunt podcasts and stuff, but I met Chad through Michigan Sportsman's Forum, and uh, he asked me to come down and help him get a co-op started down in the uh, kind of Hanover Horton area down you know, west of Jackson, and met him and a couple of other buddies of his down there, and you know we became fast friends, and he had he had started hunting in uh, Southern Ohio. And he'd gone down there and hunted down there one year, and we got talking about it. And he's going, man, he says, there's all kinds of room to roam down there. There's great deer. He says, why don't you come down and hunt with me? So I'm like, yeah, what the heck? And I've been entertaining the thought of going out of state hunting, and it was reasonably priced. I'm an empty nester, and, you know, my wife, you know, gave me her blessing to go. And, yeah, go have a great time. And, uh. I can't tell you what year it was, but, uh, you know, probably maybe 10 years ago or so. And uh, so I started going down there with Chad and, and hunting some of the public ground down there and, and fell in love with it. And, you know, it was a, a definite challenge, a different type of hunting. And hunting in uh, not mountainous area, but, you know, big hills anyways, you know, three 400 foot elevation changes and uh and so i i, I kind of got a taste for that and kind of liked it and then he and i kind of talked about maybe going out to missouri he had got a contact in 2011 he and i uh boogied on out to missouri and hunted for a week and had a whole bunch of fun and and uh then in 2012 um I got the bug to to go out west, back out to Idaho, in the area where I kind of was lived out there for a while. And uh, I've got a couple sisters out there still. And one of my brother-in-law says, "Yeah, he says you want to come out." He says, "We'll go up." He says, "I'll take you up there. Can't guarantee you we'll find any game, but we'll go up in the area." And so, 2012, uh, my brother-in-law here and I went out and hooked up with him and. Headed up into the mountains, and we were standing in camp. He was introducing me to his uncle, and we, I had actually gone out. My main animal target out there was mule deer, and he said, well, buy an elk tag while, you, you know, while you're at it. He says, at that time of year, we got to go through the elk to get to the mule deer. The bucks would be high up in the higher elevations. So I kind of reluctantly bought an elk tag, and we were standing in camp, and we are in the side of this um sagebrush covered mountainside uh two cows and a calf chased by a five five point raghorn went running by and honest to god i never thought about mule deer again <laughs> that whole trip i mean i saw those elk and i was like you know this is it i mean i was so infatuated with those elk and we were off the next morning and uh, my brother-in-law is out there it's been a bad wreck about 20 years or 15, 20 years previous, he had a steel rod in his leg and missing his spleen. And I mean, he's lucky to be alive. And, you know, he 
hiked up the mountain and the first day to kind of try to get me on elk and I just kept after him, kept at, kept after him and and I think it was like like day everybody else kind of pooped out, were tired, were taking the quad and going other places or you know who weren't physically able to keep going or whatever and I had found a spot um, that had a lot of good sign in it. I went up, decided I'd be on top of the mountain in the morning when the sun came up and just listened and sat down, ate a granola bar and opened a bottle of water and heard my heard an elk bugle real close and it was just orgasmic. <laughs> it would be the best description, you know. I was just like, holy cow, it's on, you know. And I, I snuck in and got on this bull and he was kind of up on the rim of this big basin up there and there was a cow and calf below and he was screaming his head off and I called him right into 30 yards broadside and sailed narrow right over his back. And I couldn't wait to do it again. And we actually got on that same bull later in the afternoon, my brother-in-law and I did, and he saw the bull and I said, yeah, that's him. And those are the two, you know, it was a spike and a uh, two by one, you know, a spike with one fork on the other side so it was easy to identify him said yeah it's him he's big five by five had big big swords on and and he goes that's the bull you missed this morning i said yeah and he goes oh my god he goes i've been hunting elk my whole life i've never seen one that big (laughs) (laughs) and i'm like yeah and we called him back into about 100 yards he he circled around us and come in you know above us and, and caught our stink and away he went but had two great opportunities, you know, close, well, you know, chip shot on him. And, uh, and that kind of, that kind of solidified it with me. I, I became an elk hunter in that trip. And the next year I had a, uh, 2013, I had five or four points to go to Iowa. So, you know, my fifth year I drew my Iowa tag and took a couple trips out there, killed a buck out there, uh, on the second trip out. And really enjoyed that, hunting public ground out there. And uh, I had been contributing a little bit to the um, Midwest Whitetail, you know, a little bit uh, through a couple of guys you guys know, um, Rob Gregg and Dan Frizzell. They were pro oh, yeah. staffing. And I, I was just, you know, doing a little bit of writing, contributing. We were kind of in the middle of the LPDMI, the antler point restriction stuff. So I was just, you know, writing some stuff and contributing on that site. And uh, met uh, Aaron Warbritton and Greg Francis out there, some of the guys that were, you know, working for Bill. And then also met a guy named Cody Bonner. And uh, Cody was living out there and uh, met him through Facebook. He was inquiring about the animal point restriction proposal. I'm getting off in the weeds here, but uh, he and his girlfriend were living out there. And I, talking to him on Facebook, he says, well, you know, where are you coming out here? I said, oh, I'm going to Alpia. And he goes, I live in Alpia. He says, where are you staying? And I told him, he goes, well, I got a house and a spare bedroom. You want to stay here? It's all yours. You're welcome to stay. Wow. So just, Very nice. you know, he didn't know me from Adam. And I knocked on the door and, you know, come on in. <laughs> him and his girlfriend are sitting on the couch watching Lee and Tiffany. And the dog met me at the door and, he said, yeah, hey, you know, I hope it's okay. We're having spaghetti for dinner, and, you know, <laughs> she's cooking. I'm like, 
heck yeah, man. This is cool. Go around the corner, up the top stairs to the left. That's your room. It's all yours. And fresh towels in the bathroom. And come and go as you dang well, please. And, you know, and uh, he was, at the time, uh, hooked up with uh, Chris Duncan and the boys out there at Trophy Pursuits. Chris Duncan now is with Muddy. Right. Uh, works for them. And uh, so those guys were hanging out every night you know, after they come in out of the woods. And when I come in, I'd duck into the Midwest Whitetail office and shoot the crap with them guys and and then hang out with the trophy pursuit guy. It was just made a lot of great friendships, you know, in yeah. just a couple of weeks that I was out there and uh, hunted some fantastic country sauce and just tremendous bucks. And uh, since then, I've been, you know, accumulating points, planning on going back out this year. Okay. But after that, uh, you know, but then back in 2014, uh, I wanted to go back out elk hunting, and I was prepared to go by myself if I had to. And Scott Homrich, uh, I knew he was an elk hunter, and uh, Chad said, well, geez, you know, Scott wants to go elk hunting. So we connected, and so Scott and I ended up, you know, it kind of had a casual acquaintance through QDMA and co-ops and stuff, and got talking on the phone and he says well let me check out the area you're going he did his homework he says yeah sounds good he traded in a colorado special hunt tag that he had to go to idaho with me and four hours into that hunt on the first day i killed my first six by six bull and uh 35 yards you know watched him drop over dead and watched and listened as he tumbled down a mountain Wow. Uh, Great. You know, I didn't think there'd be anything left of him. Seriously. (laughs) You know, and then the next year, took another buddy, and four days into, five days into that hunt, killed another six by six. We got eight yards, and, yeah, it's just, you know, we were getting 100% shot opportunities, either me, you know, me or the guys or both of us every trip out. A couple of years later, it was a group of six of us, and um, last year it was back to Greg Barnaby and I, and now Brad Robinson and I are going back out this year. So cool. I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of thinking now. I don't know how many more of those hunts I got in me. You know, we're sure. climbing every day, 1,500 to 2,000 feet typically to hunt, and uh, it's the carrot that keeps me in shape, which is a good thing, and. Uh, I just love it. Listening to Elk Bugle in the morning, there's just nothing. There's nothing like it. You got that right. Yeah. So. Well, very and, nice. Uh, in 2018, uh, a bunch of us went to Alaska to hunt caribou. Um, that was a fantastic trip. Two weeks in north of the Arctic Circle, up in the middle of nowhere, with grizzly bears and catching grayling and chasing caribou. And uh, this last fall, a group of us, uh, me and three buddies, went to uh, Saskatchewan. And I killed my first moose and my first mule deer. And that was a great trip, too. So, I bet. uh, Yep. I've had some really wonderful adventures. And I, 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 I really owe a lot of credit to my stepfather. You know, he... He was the, when he met my mom, I was, you know, very young and impressionable, and he knew that I loved to hunt, and he'd take me squirrel and rabbit hunting, he kind of revisited his youth, and, you know, what a, 
he just thought, well, there's no better way to build a relationship with a stepson than to feed into his passions. And he just poured gasoline on that fire and, and in turn, it, you know, kind of ignited the flame in him too from when he was a kid. And he started hunting abroad kind of in his retirement years, his later in his years and, and kind of, you know, kind of guided me along that path and how important it was to pick the right hunting partners and, you know, it's, and, and I can't emphasize that enough. If you're going to be hunting abroad with somebody, you're going to be spending a week or 10 days or two weeks with them. Oh, yeah. It's just you and them and or, or, or group. Chemistry is crucial, just crucial. There's, there's no hunt, no animal worth of, you know, sacrifice under friendship. And it's a, and it's, it's a real art to, to make sure that you, you got that chemistry with people when you're going to be doing something like that. And, uh, so. That's a great point. Yeah. Wow, Tony, you've been on quite a few trips. That's, uh, that's awesome. I, uh, I aspire to, to be the traveled hunter like you are someday that's that's really cool i think uh going out west and then you know way up north that's that's just god's country up there that's just really really awesome but even you know relating it back to michigan you don't seem to do too bad in michigan um you know we always joke a little bit on here about ragging on michigan as pressured state and real tough and it is but you know i we also love hunting here and You've had some good history, and my friend Steve, is your your friend as well, our mutual friend Steve, told me about this thing called the the 700 Club. Yeah. Now, I've heard of things like the Mile High Club or, like, things like that. Well, what's the 700 Club? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'd love to tell you it was, a, it was an original idea, but I... I'm a charter subscriber to uh, North America Whitetail Magazine, and years back, this would have been, golly, you know, over 25, maybe 30 years ago. And one of those, in one of the issues of that magazine, there was, uh, I remember vaguely something about uh, the 700 Club, and that, and what, and the gist of it is, what are your top five grossing bucks you know now we're talking just specifically antlers and it's totally you know but what are the top five bucket scores your top five bucks and i kind of and i started this thread on the michigan sportsman's farm gosh it's been it's a long running thread several years ago and i just said hey you know this this is what it is and top five grossing bucks in Michigan, uh, you know, they got to reach 700 inches gross through top five. And I was, re- I, even to this day, I'm shocked at how, you know, with as many deer hunters as we've got in the state, how few guys really do qualify for that, you know, that kind of, I, I I don't like to say elite status, but to have five bucks that average 140 inches, gross typical score in the state, and you'd think with as many, you know, with everybody being able to shoot two bucks a year and some, you know, pretty damn good deer hunters in this state, 
you'd think that there'd be more people that would be that qualify. And there's always those guys that, you know, they've got a wall full of bucks and they never show anybody outside of their home. And that's, that's, there's guys like that everywhere in the country, right? Right. Yep. But, you know, that Michigan Sportsman's Forum, there's, gosh, in excess of 50,000 people on that site. And wow. the deer hunting, the deer hunting end of it is, is really well represented. And over the years, uh, uh, there's only, golly, a dozen guys that qualify. And, uh, you know some some pretty darn nice bucks and so and there's a couple of guys in there that have done it with a bow um but by and large it's guys that have you know done it mixed bag bow and gun um i've i'm knocking at the door and uh i've had i've been fortunate uh to kill some good bucks here and most of my good bucks came after um i organized my neighborhood into a deer management cooperative back in 2001. Um, I killed a buck that was just shy of 100. He grossed like 157, almost 158. Two years later, I killed one that uh, was uh, 10 point that went 160 in uh, a fraction. Um, two years after that, I killed a four-and-a-half-year-old buck that was just shy of 120, heaviest buck I've ever killed. I, the next year, I killed my only uh, Pope and Young buck. He was just shy of 140. And then my next biggest buck, the buck I killed in the UP way back in 1990, that was like 110 point. Nice buck, you know, for the UP where we were at. Uh, he was like 103. So the buck, you know, now in order to qualify for that 700 club, personally, I need a need is a subjective thing but i need to kill a buck at a 125 inch buck and in our neighborhood you know we've got we've got some two-year-old bucks that reach that threshold and most of our three-year-olds get there and uh but you know the last the last really great buck i killed was in 2011 if you you were paying attention to when my my uh, elk hunting and, you know, hunting abroad really started with about that time. And I just did not, when I started hunting abroad, I really, it really sacrificed my prep prep time, my scouting, you know, uh, my food plots, uh, a lot of my habitat work, it, it, you know, suffered because of my preparation time, especially for hunting out west. You know, I was going out in September. I was doing a lot of a lot of archery practice every day, you know, shooting out to 70 yards, a lot of uh, physical training, a lot of ruck hikes, um, yeah, everything that it re- is required to be effective in the mountains hunting elk, that took away from what I was putting into my whitetail hunting here to have the success that I had. And, you know, again, you know, it's, for me, it wasn't a it, it wasn't a matter of being able to do both. Yeah, I was limited in time, work full time job. You know, got a wife that that 
likes me, I guess, and wants to spend <laughs> some time with me. So, you know, it's just I, I just kind of split my time, and, yeah. and consequently, I haven't had I haven't had the success on big whitetails that I had in that that early stretch. I definitely the bucks are here. Um, I've had some very close calls with some great bucks. Just missed them by an hour here, an hour there, you know. Uh, the buck I was chasing this year uh, was killed on a neighboring property. He uh, broke off a brow time and ended up being a seven point that I'm told grossed right at 140. Um, we expect, we suspect he was seven and a half, five, five years, at least five years of history. I know three solid years of trail cam pictures of him. I thought he was at least six and a half, and the neighbor said that he had history with him. He thought he was seven and a half. But regardless, that you know, to hunt an 11-acre parcel and a 19-acre parcel in a heavily hunted neighborhood and to have opportunities of buck at that bucks of that caliber is, is really not normal in Michigan. And it really is attributed to uh, neighbors getting on the same page, that co-op movement and, you know, um, that's kind of where the, you know, my, I kind of, you know, attribute my opportunities at least at bucks like that on my efforts and getting the neighborhoods, people around and just kind of getting them on the same page and letting year and a half old bucks walk and let the brick chips fall where they may, you know, and, yeah. and uh, so yeah, I it's think, worked uh, real good and, you know, just, oh, go ahead. people started. When people started seeing us have success like that, you know, they're like, geez, if those knuckle-draggers in Eaton County can do it, maybe we can. And <laughs> guys like Chad Thalen, you know, he's got his co-op going. And then uh, the Maple River co-op got going, Darren Heckman up there. And, you know, it started, I phone started ringing. People started asking me, hey, can you come and tell the people in my neighborhood? So I was talking in basements and garages and pole barns and township halls and, you know, churches and stuff like that, you know, I just say, well, send out the invitations, let's set a date, time, and place, and I'll come, and, you know, just, and it kind of spread and kind of grew, and um, and it, 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 I, I guess it was kind of the forerunner of Anna Mitterling and Morgan uh, Morgan's positions, Um you know, it just got to the point where the co-ops were, there was a, such a demand for a full-time person doing it. And by that time, I, after a decade of doing that, on my own time and my own dime, I was tickled to see somebody take it over full-time. And yeah, wow. So I could move on and do some other stuff. So, But it, it was a wonderful experience. And, man, some of my best friends in the world are people I've met through deer hunting and you know, sportsman's forum and quality deer management and, you know, everything else. It's just solid, lifelong relationships. And and I, I'm kind of a, you know, that's kind of where it's at for me anyways. That's the kind of person I am. So, yeah, you, that, you mentioned uh, a few valuable. Yeah, you mentioned a few valuable things there. Um, you know, we love talking about big deer and, and setting up our properties and how to hunt them. But even with the the 700 Club, the, the fact that you're crediting the cooperative that you guys had had been a part of and formed and grew is is pretty cool. Uh, I know 
we've talked about co-ops before, and I plan on having Morgan on here in the future to talk about them again. But a lot of our good deer hunting, and actually one of my main requirements for where my property had to be when I purchased one was inside of a co-op, a cooperative. Uh, a lot of the credit goes to all that hard work and, and that type of land and neighborhood. I mean, the advantages that come out of that, just everybody getting on the same page in a pressured state like this is really, it's really advantageous. Yeah, and it, what it just did, you know, and we really didn't, there was no, nothing motivated us more than just protecting year and a half old bucks and being more, uh, you know, being more uh, assertive and taking our antlerless deer, you know. Some of the farmers that got on board, they were, you know, they are complaining they were getting crop damage permits and stuff like that not even they don't even worry about it anymore they're all tickled to death you know they're farmers like seeing big antlers too you know and most of the farmers in our neighborhood hunt uh and probably hunt more now that we've got those bucks in the neighborhood than they did beforehand and uh but it just and the thing about co-ops is you know when i was sharing with people i you know i just shared with them how important it was to give it a chance that they weren't going it wasn't a magic pill and it wasn't going to just change overnight that it was going to take a little bit of time that after the first year let year and a half old bucks walk obviously they were going to see a lot of nice two-year-old bucks the next year you know and that their sightings of some nice racked bucks and bean fields and hay fields in the summertime were going to go up and which was going to build enthusiasm and excitement for the upcoming season. And, you know, there was just a lot of people in our neighborhood out here uh, had never killed a buck older than a year and a half old. Or maybe their dad or grandpa killed a buck that was on the wall that was, you know, a 100-inch eight point, and they were, they was just like, yeah, someday I want to be able to kill a buck bigger than grandpa's, or, you know. And that was and those bucks were two-and-a-half-year-old bucks, fantastic bucks. I, I, I never put down anybody for any deer they shoot, ever. It, it, you know, no deer is worth, you know, criticizing anybody over. Um, right. And, you know, it was just, you know, there's a farm here in our neighborhood, with the best buck that had ever come off of it, that, uh, and it's like fourth generation now uh, was just a beautiful eight-point buck. It was, you know, probably in that high 120 class. And uh, I think it was the, we started a co-op in 2001 and 2004 that killed a 180-inch 10-point off that farm. Jeez. And it killed um, that big seven-point, that big buck this year was killed on that farm, that big seven point that I was chasing was killed on that farm, 165 inches that I had a lot of history with. Wow. Killed there in 2011. You know, lots of 140s and, and, uh, you know, there's been some, you know, the neighboring properties, they're killing, you know, the best bucks of their lives. And, and, uh, it's, you know, I just told people, you know, Give it five years. Give it an honest effort in five years and then decide if it's for you or not. And most of the people that did that have been rewarded. And I, you know, 
after being around it enough, I said, you know, by the 10th year, if people buy into it, by the 10th year, you've changed the culture. And that's really what it takes. It's a, it's a cultural shift where guys just, they don't even think about shooting year and a half old bucks. It's just not, it, it's not in their wheelhouse to even think about that. that you know, that's different for kids. And having a bunch of year and a half old bucks in the neighborhood for kids to target, man, you talk about excitement. Kids, you know, by the time the kids would get out on November 15th, most of the time, I'd already tagged out on two year and a half old bucks if right. I wanted, you know. So sure. I, those two, there's two bucks off the table that a kid can shoot now. And, uh, you know, I was, the, you know, I just was like, if I want to see older and bigger bucks, I got to look in the mirror. You know, I, I was the problem, and uh, that's you know, like when I addressed that, and then it came to terms with that, then everything changed. You know, and it changed for the neighbors. And but more importantly, it, and I can't emphasize this enough, it changed for the deer herd because in, in my neighborhood, when we bought this property, we run no no word of a lie, eighty to a hundred deer per square mile. We're in a river bottom, had a lot of CRP ground in the neighborhood, a uh, big long stretch, of, a two-mile long stretch of timber between major road crossings, and a lot of topography change, and uh, a buck-first mentality. And, um, you know, when we, when we changed that philosophy and started being, you know, um, very dedicated to, you know, sparing those year and a half old bucks and taking enough antlerless deer, everything changed. And it's just, it's been really just been a, a fantastic experience um, where I, I just about every sit during uh, archery season, I'm seeing multiple bucks. A lot of them are year and a half. I see a lot of two and a half year old bucks and I have encounters Every year with at least two, three and a half year old bucks, and I'm, I've got four and five year old bucks in the neighborhood that I'm chasing every year. So, um, wow, you know, it's on small property, so it's uh, it's and it's duplicatable. You know, a lot of people are doing it now. You know, I mean, Nick Nation, look what he did this year on his ten acres. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, it makes a huge difference, and nice job by you guys for getting that all together because that, that's a tough thing when people are trying to get neighbors to buy into everything. Yeah, it, it, yeah, and it is. And you and it, you got to be, uh, you know, make a friend, find a need, transfer a feeling is the kind of philosophy. I started talking to people about, you know, that I was going to, that I was passing year and a half old bucks, were they interested in doing it? They were like, look at your cross. I'd like, <laughs> who passes bucks, you know? But right. they were also like, geez, heck yeah, man. If we thought you were shooting them all. You know, you, don't you have four guys, five guys hunting on your 19 acres? And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's me and my two young sons, you know, and occasionally my stepdad they're like oh we thought you had guys over there filling both the tags every year and a half old bucks if we didn't shoot them you were going to i'm like no but that's exactly what i thought about you guys you yeah, know that's, that's, it, that's so, always the thinking too for sure yeah yeah but, 
So you got the 19 acres. Tell us a little bit about the 11 acre part that you've been hunting. Um, that that's a piece of property that I've actually leased. Uh, gentleman that owns it lives out of state. Uh, it was a property that's been in his family for a long time. When his folks died, he got a piece of this woods. His brother got a piece, and um, and he had uh, nobody was supposed to be hunting it. His brother was letting a guy hunt his portion of it, and those guys ended up coming in, hunting the whole thing, and trespassing and everything else, and it kind of got a little bit sketchy there, and we kind of reached out to him, told him what we were doing in the neighborhood, and uh, just asked that any hunters that he had on there, if they would kind of participate in what we were doing, um, that they would benefit, and he says, well, nobody's supposed to be hunting it, and I was like, okay, well, then he Anyways, he decided that, you know, maybe he could make a couple bucks, pay the taxes, uh, if he leased it. And so, uh, it was made available to me and we came to an agreement on the price and, and, uh, I've been leasing it ever since 2006. And, um, all of those bucks that I mentioned earlier, uh, came off of that property, uh, plus a couple others. Uh, my brother-in-law shot a buck that eight-point mainframe with a flyer off his G2 that um, he killed on November 2nd a few years ago, and that buck was knocking on 150. Wow. And the next year he went in there on opening day of gun season and killed a, a ten-point that went 136. So that little 11 acres has produced well in excess of 700 inches of antler, and I, I can't do anything with it. He took he took a select harvest of black walnuts off of there a couple of years after I leased it, and um, and that's all that's been done to that. I can't hinge cut in there. There's, it's all wood, so there's no room for food plots. There's some decent mass crop. There's some white oak. Uh, there's some hickories, um, hickories that the deer have been vacuuming up, and that's been a real draw. But the property next to it, his brother... Uh, was letting the neighbor that's right there on the road frontage let him, he's been letting him hunt, and that guy's got a grandson that's kind of cut his teeth hunting there, and uh, the older he got in high school and so on and so forth, the more he hunted, the more he hunted, the less success I was experiencing just because he was, he wasn't using real good entry exit, he didn't use any scent control, um, he used a you know, he uses aluminum ladders to get up to his tree stands. He loves to grunt and rattle. And, okay. And, uh, you know, he's a young kid cutting his teeth. And so sure. I'm like, hey, <laughs> I was there. I can remember doing all those same things. And, uh, and you know, consequently, those old bucks just aren't as tolerant of that kind of activity in a small woods that is basically about a 20-acre woodlot. And he's on one side and I'm on the other. So uh, my sightings on older bucks in there has gone down consequently. But, you know, it's kind of kind of at the point in my life where it's like, you know, how many more, you know, how, how important is a three-and-a-half or four-and-a-half-year-old buck right. at, the, at the cost of, you know, taking opportunity away from him. So it makes yeah, it easier to go sense. other places to hunt. You know, got a lease now in Kentucky too. So we got this last fall was the first year on that, and that's 
been a lot of fun so far. So how far is that 11 acres from your 19? The way the crow flies, it's about a mile uh, straight north. Okay. Yeah. Now walk us, walk us through what, how this property lays out, the 11 acres. Is it square, rectangular? What's the topography it, it, like? It, it, um, it's... Uh, it's bordered on the north. The, the road on the north side it, it, it runs on a, you know, north, uh, northeast to southwest, and uh, and then of course the south border is is a large farm. That's a 245 acre farm, and that's where all those big the neighbors killed all those other big ones. So that that farm because they hunt it so sparingly and they dedicated. Um, the center 80 acres of woods they i mean they don't step in that thing you know after like syrup season nobody goes in there there's very little activity on it you know at the time i was killing those bucks and he uh he was primarily a pheasant hunter and and then a deer hunter and he uh put it all it was in the crp program and he planted a bunch of it into warm season grasses and that was, you know, those warm season grass, grasses bordered that property on the south side. So with primarily southwest prevailing winds, you know, bucks were coming out of his sanctuary area through those uh, native warm season grasses and were staging in that little 11 acre woods before they'd passed, you know, before they'd crossed that road to the north and into the ag fields. So it was, it was uh, you know a lot of rut activity in there. There's um, you know they come in the, the older bucks are in there a lot. You know typically from late October you know up, up and through deer gun season. Um, but it was really the, the the secret to hunting that property was um, a, a big subscriber to you know the scent free regiment and. Um, sure. You know, learned a lot from Brocker about that. And, um, you know, on you know what things are what things are important and why, and kind of the science behind all of that. So I, I I'm kind of a scent scent free Nazi on that, and I, I really worked on the entry exit. There's a small there's a small drainage ditch that runs through there. There's just a little bit of topography, and that that little creek that runs down through there is sandy and gravelly bottom, and uh, the topography is probably oh four feet of elevation difference, which may not seem like very much, but it really is huge, especially when you're walking in water or in a sandy creek bed. So. I, I use that, and I'm typically walking into the wind, and two of my best, most productive stands in there are literally steps out of that crook bed where I'm stepping out of there right to the base of the tree and right up in it. And, of course, deer being drainage animals, they they actually come off of that farm to the south, and where they enter that woods is in that depression where that crook runs out of there. Um you're naturally predisposed to, you know, kind of follow those depressions, use that topography, and they they come into that woods there. And uh, right. and and I I think uh, 
Well, three, my 2006, 2008, 2010 Vaquerel filled out of the same stand right at that spot. And then my brother-in-law's two big ones were killed out of that same spot. And then my uh, Pope and Young was killed a couple hundred yards to the west of there on the other end of the property. And Do you think that, uh, uh, you think that sanctuary is the number one reason for being able to take that many mature bucks off of that piece? Oh, no question. Oh, there's no okay. question. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if for nothing else, it, you know, those, those bucks, um, and, and there's been, I've spent countless hours sitting in that stand watching bucks over on that property that, and they never, they never came into that lease, you know, before dark, you know, they're just out, you know, in a food plot out there, or, you know, sent checking those and then moving on or going out a different portion of the property. But yeah, the, the, I, I'm under no illusions that 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 farm and the way that it's hunted and and you know that the that big sanctuary area, uh, cup you know. But by the same token, bucks like that were in our neighborhood until we started the co-op. Right. Uh, so, you know, those bucks after they get a year or two old, I mean, they'll seek out you know big undisturbed areas like that. And if you hunt, you know, they don't they don't know that my woods. Unless I'm doing something wrong, they don't know that my woods is is not on that farm. You know, they're using that habitat, and if if I'm hunting it smart, um, that's really what it's, it took. Is not over hunting it, good entry exit, good scent control, and uh, not over hunting it. You know, that's the big thing. And um, so. Well, plus those warm-season grasses. I lay waste of the antlerless deer in there. I killed a, just truckloads of antlerless deer on that property, too. Excellent. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by the smaller properties that produce, and a lot of times guys get caught up into thinking, well, i, I got to get 100 acres, i got to get 200 acres, and it's all about getting the right piece, no matter what size it is or what it's going to cost you. And mm-hmm. Guys prove it. All the time, eleven acres, seven hundred club. I mean, that that speaks for itself. In Michigan, you know. In Michigan, yeah. and Jared, I think Steve, Steve, the guy that you're talking about, the, the bucks, you know, he's knocking on seven hundred, and he's not doing it on an eleven acre par- parcel that's mostly reed canary grass and and autumn olives, and in a you know pretty heavily hunted area in Livingston County, if it's. Yeah, he's the guy I'm thinking of. No, yeah, yeah so. no, no, Steve Surratt for sure. He's uh, he's not he's far Surratt. from from where I live, and he's uh, knocking on that. He said he's two inches off or something, and I'm I'm just thinking that I should sell my 15 and buy 11 somewhere, or maybe just sell four acres. Maybe it's an 11 thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who knows what it is? I know you guys. I look at my 19, and I mean I'm get. You know, a lot of those bucks that I mentioned that have been, you know, bucks that I've killed on that other property or bucks that were killed on that up that 245-acre farm, I've got picked on my place, on my 19 acres, and a lot of them during daylight hours. Really? Um, so it's not, you know, I mean, those bucks will wander, and really it's, it's, it's pretty amazing when them bucks get older, you'd think in a heavily pressured area that uh, 
that they would just be, you know, um, racking nerves and, and wouldn't move, but they do, you know. And if they're not getting blasted at every time they walk out of cover when they're a year and a half or two and a half years old, they, you know, kind of embolden them, emboldens them. And something that I noticed in, in, you know, becoming friends with a lot of those guys in Iowa, like that Chris Duncan and those guys with Trophy Pursuits, a lot of the bucks that they're that they're targeting out there, well, some of those bucks are six, seven, eight years old, uh, you know, and they're on properties where they're helping guys manage, you know, some of these guys that got big properties and they're helping them manage and stuff, and they're taking a lot of target bucks that they just don't score real well or whatever. But these bucks are wandering around on, you know, not heavily hunted properties, but regularly hunted properties. And Chris is like, and I've read about this before, that, you know, when them old bucks get older, they really kind of fall out of the, the hierarchy as far as breeding, you know, and, and, you know, what I've learned with my association through um, quality deer management and hanging around with Dr. James Kroll and those guys is that, you know, three-and-a-half-year-old bucks do the – if you got enough of them in the herd, they're going to do the lion's share of the breeding and the – young and athletic and got a lot more energy and those older bucks are less apt to fight for those does and spend a lot more time on their belly and you know uh worrying about you know putting on pounds and and that sort of thing they just kind of you know it's just like us i suppose the older we get the you know probably not for you guys but i can relate (laughs) (laughs) no i hear you so you know bucks get like that too and those guys are shooting those older bucks and that's what i witnessed with that buck that i was chasing this last fall is you know six seven year old buck that was wandering around in daylight i had a picture of him 20 yards beyond my garage on december 18th at two o'clock in the afternoon no way yeah and i on november 30th i watched him for six hours i watched so I'm bedded in a rock pile in the middle of a corn stubble field he got up at nine o'clock walked 100 yards and stood in Next to a multi-floor rose, standing up, sound asleep, eyes closed, head down, zonked out cold. Holy <laughs> cow. Are you kidding me? Wow. <laughs> One of the coolest days I ever had in the woods, you know, on November 30th. And, you know, it was just those, those are experiences I would never have been able to have in Michigan anyways, you know, right in my own backyard, if it weren't for, you know, the efforts of the of my neighbors and buying into the co-op and, and buying into that philosophy and trusting that it was going to work, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head there. I mean, like I said earlier, I, I wouldn't even look at a property if I wasn't in a, an existing cooperative back when I was originally looking for property um now mm-hmm. now i might open my eyes a little bit more to a, a broader menu of properties knowing that you can create a co-op uh if there's some strategy to it there's employees in michigan that it, that's their job to help you do like morgan yeah. and, and there's a science behind it like like you mentioned and so it's, it's kind of uh inspiring and you can do this in in any other state too i mean we do it because it's very advantageous for us here based on the pressure, but you can have a cooperative in Iowa or, or wherever you want, right? I mean, it's going to be 
great wherever yeah, you are. Yeah, you know, but where the it, it's interesting, and you know, it's another in, interesting study in human behavior and regulations and stuff. But there's very little interest in them in Ohio. They're a one buck state. That's the you know the kind of the culture is is that they by and large don't target year and a half old bucks. Um, antlerless tags are pretty much available statewide. Same type of thing in Iowa. You know, the culture out there is, is you know, um, they do, don't target you and a half old bucks by and large, and there's plenty of antlerless deer available. Illinois, you know, again, um, you know, Wisconsin, I think, is just kind of a prime place to, for co-ops and probably a state like Pennsylvania and definitely upstate New York. I think they're, they're kind of catching on up there. Missouri... Actually, they they were the first ones to have a co-op coordinator, um, and Anna and Morgan's position uh, was uh, kind of an offshoot of that gentleman's uh, position, and okay. um, he was an employee of Quality Deer Management Association in Missouri, and uh, don't remember his name. Seems like his name was Brian something, but I think he was a he was a uh, former conservation officer. Yeah, it's just it, a lot of it has to do with what the hunting culture is in the state, what the regulations are, you know, and whether or not in Michigan we were just primed for it, right? I mean, we, yeah, you get two tags and you can shoot anything with bone on its head, and you know, you can, you know, it was just those. There, there was some real pen up. Um, Pent up anxiety with hunters and wanting to do something different, and, and regulations here just weren't just weren't feeding into that pent up need for you know for a little bit man, different management philosophy. And when I got involved in it, if the listeners don't know, I, I led the effort um, for the LPDMI Lower Peninsula Deer Management Initiative when we did the antler plant restriction proposal for zones two and three. This would have been back 2012-2013 time frame. And I didn't, you know, it was easy for guys to say, oh, all you, you know, want is trophy deer. I already had all all my big bucks have been killed with the regulations that were in place. The difference was is the management philosophy and the, and the culture that was adopted around where I was hunting. So... I went into that antler point restriction proposal process with that philosophy of this is a good management practice. It, the, the only tool we had in order to to advance bucks, young bucks in those age classes was antler point restrictions. It was the only that's the only thing that was available for us to use um, because of the political ends of things and the way that the DNR and the NRC had it set up. So I was like, okay, if that's the only tool we have, my philosophy and Brocker's philosophy, he was right there. He and I were doing all the presentations around the state, you know, quite a talented entourage around us. Dean Smith and Lincoln was very involved, Lincoln Roan, and, you know, just a bunch, Dave Curtis and Chad Thalen and Chad Chrysler. And, uh, you know, there's quite a, you know, active group of us that were, pursuing that and uh 
my philosophy was it, this is good management. It's good for our deer herd. We've been struggling, you know, especially in zone three, we've struggled for decades and decades and decades with overpopulation. Different regulations, you know, one tag a day you could buy for antlerless, and they said, okay, we're going to limit it to 10, and then there was blowback from that, and then they did a study in the psychology of things, and that if they limited guys to five, that more guys would shoot one or two than if they limited it to 10. Wow. And, you know, and I was just like, this is insanity. You know, we just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and we're not getting anything different results so my philosophy going in was and, and I had the track record I didn't need antler point restrictions to kill big bucks I looked at it with it's a good management practice to protect year and a half old bucks and if this is the only tool we have to do it it's worth pursuing and at least giving it a try for five years and see if it makes a difference and uh, you know about, about the time that Ours failed is when the Northwest 12 was, you know, passing, and, and they, of course, you know, there's that's a tremendous success story that should be duplicated, and, and you know, is could possibly, you know, is possibly be jeopardized because of chronic wasting disease. So you never, you, you just don't know. I mean, it's a deer management is fluid. You know, you, you, it, it's changed. It's changed over the over 120 years that we've been actively managing deer in this state. You know, different things have changed. So, um, and they'll change in the future. Those demographics change, and yeah, and the herd dynamics sure. change, and property ownership and public land ownership changes. It's you know, it's, it, it should change to to. Uh, benefit the, the resource. Very nice. Now, it, it, totally agree on on all of that. I've, I've been following you and, and the group and, and Dr. Jim and everything for a long time, and uh, I think as the, the demographic changes, I think um, it will it will turn more in, into a more of a management state eventually it's, it's going to be a while I think but my thoughts are once the the guys like like my grandpa who was against shooting does you know is uh it, once they're out of the the hunting picture if you will you know things are just gonna, they're going to switch so um eventually yeah. it's, it's going to be a while but um you know but how cool would it be Jared to, for for those guys to get on board and 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 and, and help, you know, I mean, they've been such pioneers for generations. How cool would it be for them to say, you know what, maybe you young guys know something, and maybe this is a good thing. And <laughs> oh, it'd be, it'd be better. You know, it'd and, be and better that are, way. You know, there's a, I know, I'm 59, you know, I'm kind of in that group. But And there's a lot of guys, you know, hats off to Ed Spinazzola. I mean, my God, what he's done for white-tailed deer in this state is you know, it's just immeasurable. And, you know, I, I, every deer hunter in this state owes a debt of gratitude to that man for, you know, what he's done for deer in this state and for deer hunters. And, you know, he's taken a lot of slings and arrows and, you know, he stuck to his guns and he had the courage of his convictions. And, and uh, you know, he 
he, he gave a, a good portion of his life to, you know, to promoting good sound deer management. He's still doing it, you know, even in his late senior years. Now, there was one more thing that we wanted to cover here tonight, Tony. Um, I'm glad we got into figuring out what the habitat was, where you've been successful, and uh, and, and I want to talk a little bit more about your 19 acres, but also the the Charles Alzheimer five stages of being a hunter, or five stages mm-hmm. of the deer hunter, because we were talking on the phone the other day, and you mentioned that you are in a different stage now than you were when you were killing all those nice big bucks on your property. Now you have your, your grandson you care about, getting him out mm-hmm. there. And uh, I guess give us maybe a little rundown of where you're at in your habitat and hunting stages uh, right now before we wrap this up. Well, my 19 acres is is just a bigger version, I guess, of kind of like what Nick's got. Nick's got 10 acres. His house sits right in the middle of it. I bought this, and I ended up building a house right smack dab in the middle of it. Uh, there's a small drainage that runs right down through the middle of it. Uh, it's 19 acres, but it's the it's an 80 acre farm that was parceled off, and I bought a, the back corner of it. So okay. the property, my property corner, starts a you know a quarter mile off the county road. Nice. So I'm you know, and it's down in the river bottom. The Thornapple River runs through my property on the east end, and I got a small drainage creek that runs down through the middle of it into the Thornapple. It's actually got floodplain between the house and the river. And uh, I was hit pretty hard by the uh, emerald ash borer. Got a lot of white ash in that river bottom that got hammered, and I kind of saw it coming and uh, went back and I hinge cut a whole bunch of that white ash and uh, a lot of it, very big stuff, you know, talking about stuff that up to 12, 14 inches at chest height that I was getting hinges on. And I do not recommend novices doing that. And certainly don't, if you're going to be doing it, don't be out in the woods alone doing it because white ash, barber chairs, a lot of guys have been killed cutting white ash. So, wow. And it's not and it's it's not typically a tree that you look at to hinge cut anyways because of barber chairs, and certainly not big timber like you know big trees like that. I got back there at, at the right time of the year, and the you know it was in uh, when the sap was coming up in late winter and uh, on a on a good day, and I got. A, a bunch of it down and about half of it stayed together. Um, but it was, you know, it was, my butthole was puckered when I was doing it. I, you know, I had to get that those trees down. And consequently, what I ended up with, I, I knew that there was going to be a lot of energy in the root systems and that I get a lot of stump regrowth. And I really, so a lot of those trees I cut higher, you know, Jeff Sturgis just talks about cutting low so you get everything down where the deer can eat. Yeah, but I was over. opening up, you know, I was doing a, basically a tornado zone. It was all white ash and with a few black walnuts and the occasional uh, white swamp oak or, you know, something like that. I was just getting that stuff down on the ground, getting some of it to stay together. It wasn't really that important, but I was, I got tremendous stump growth off of that. And I've got stuff on there now that needs to be hinged you know, white ash 
growth that's four to five inches in diameter that can be, you know, either pulled down tied or, you know, hinge cut and uh, actually, you know, it creates some decent, you know, um, overstory, uh, you know, in small clumps and and the deer bedding under it, you know, and typically in the, you know, in the hunting season. the the flood it's in a floodplain so it's just it's very susceptible you know um, if we get a wet fall it can be underwater and I don't have any opportunity I have snuck a couple of small food plots in there they've been very effective uh, when it's not when they're not underwater of course um, and then on my higher ground I've been very aggressive with hinge cutting I've got a lot of uh, hackberry which I absolutely love to hinge. That that's my favorite tree to hinge. I got a lot of black cherry. I've got a lot of hard maple and soft maple. Um, I even hinge cut some black walnuts that weren't ever going to be decent logs. Um, I have hinge cut oaks, you know, in an effort to you know open up, you know, understory or you know canopy around a, a more productive tree. And I've got some. Um, um, each and also some hickory and I'm, I'm really kind of fond of if if i get a hickory hickory nut tree that's um producing and those deer that here in my place they love those hickory nuts and and uh they've been a big draw when i when i get good mass crops on my hickories but i've got uh, most of my property has been aggressively hinge cut um my project this winter is going in and open up some spots that got a little bit clogged when we inch cut it and in hunting it this year. I noticed that it kind of minute, you know, it kind of uh, screwed up a couple of travel uh, routes that um, I hadn't anticipated. So I'll go in and open them up um, and start, you know, routing those deer around a little bit better around that that uh, intense bedding area that I got there got a wide open 100 acre ag field on the north side of me uh the neighbor to the south of me um, plants corn and beans leaves them up all year long for just to feed the deer he's got a small grove of pine trees that uh, he planted when he bought the place um he's typically not real selective about what he shoots uh it's okay and his i you know he's got a sawmill and he burns firewood so you know, his usage of his woods is much different than mine. Um, you know, if there's a tree there that's a log, it's going on a sawmill. It's, you know, he needs 30 face cord of wood a year to heat his house. You, you can understand, you know, I can appreciate that uh, his desire to use his woods differently than mine. So Yeah. Uh, and with it being in a river bottom, you know, naturally I get a lot of um, – a lot of deer moving up and down that river bottom because they're drainage animals. They use, you know, they use waterways to, to travel. So get a lot of uh, north-south travel. And then my property kind of sits, you know, perpendicular to the rivers, east and west. And and getting, I'm starting to get a lot more now of that, uh, you know, that uh, circular motion around my property. The more that I develop it. And, I just need to be a little bit more um, uh, 
committed to getting some food plots, and I haven't done any food plots on this property in two or three years. Uh, I kind of got away from it, thought that, you know, the neighbor's property with the corn and beans he was planting was probably enough, and um, I, I, I'm kind of leaning back now, putting in maybe a couple little hidey hole spots just to maybe get deer moving on their feet a little bit more during the day. Very nice, and now that you're, you got your property, uh, you know, you, you have a plan which you're executing and, and you have some things in the works this year who's your uh who's your favorite hunter to have out there and uh what's his name <laughs> that's tater that's my that's my uh four-year-old grandson um he's uh quite the kid he was uh he spent his first 91 days of life in uh, helen devos hospital in the NICU. Oh, wow. He was two pounds nine ounces, and that kid is tougher than nails. I, you know, he he had to be a fighter to make it, and uh, he's just. Uh, I've got three grandkids, and I love every one of them, and every one of them are different. But uh, that Tater, he's a unique little individual, and uh, he loves to hunt. And we, um, we, you know, we encourage him. We. His first gun was a, a cork gun that we got down at Turkeyville, and he wore that thing out. I've had to fix it and modify it two or three times. And we, this last year for Christmas, we got him a um, a rifle with a sling and stuff over it to Bellas, and now he's wearing that thing out. But we go out on Thanksgiving. We have a, the last two Thanksgivings. We've had our traditional papa and tater deer hunt, and uh, – <laughs> It includes, we're hunting deer, we're hunting big bucks, bears, and werewolves. <laughs> so, you know, and we take we take a fistful of snacks out, and we sit in a box blind and open up the windows and, you know, and uh, just enjoy the heck out of it. And, uh, you know, just my most memorable hunts. You know, I can remember every moment of, you know, the, the couple of hunts that we've had. And my other grandson is just a couple months older. He lives in Hawaii with his folks. They're going to be back here this fall, I think. And I'm looking forward to, you know, you know, if, those, if they're if they're both interested, even my granddaughter, she's 10. She lives up in, up in Fowler with her mom, and and uh, she's pretty good shot with a 22. And if she decides she wants to deer hunt, I would love to get her involved too but whatever they want to do you know i just you know like my stepdad did with me you know find their passion pour gasoline on that fire and and uh my two boys my youngest boy he was he enjoys hunting he's kind of his adult life has been kind of in the military and uh my older son loved livestock he's a farmer he's got show cattle and that's his passion, and I poured gas on that fire, and and uh, you know he's got his own farm now and raising some beautiful Angus cows, and and uh, you know it'd be cool if they were into hunting like I was, but you know I'm happy that they've got something that you know just lights them up and it gets them excited, and my younger son is really always had a passion for marine life and 
always wanted to be a scuba diver. Now he's a master diver. He's got, gosh, over 300 dives under his belt. They live in Hawaii. They're diving all the time. And wow. He's really just he's an expert and uh, really accomplished diver now. And, and, you know, and I just encouraged him with whatever they wanted to do. And if it was hunting, great. If it was something else, that's okay, too. Yep. Yep. I think uh, that's an important message. I think... I think talking to you tonight, there's a there's a bunch of important messages. So I uh, I really really enjoyed it, especially that one. I, I tell you what, I got my five year olds out for their first hunts this year, and I I took some video of it because I like to self film and video all my stuff. Mm-hmm. And and uh, tell you what, I'm gonna make a video on on their first hunts, and it was just I just smile ear to ear watching those videos. Yeah. yeah, it's just amazing. Yep. Yeah, I, I, and I take little videos, you know, just with my phone and Tater. I'll post them on Facebook and share them with family and stuff like that, too. Yeah, and that's, you know, I cherish those. It's, it's social media, it's, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, it can be yep. a bad thing or it can be a great thing. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm archiving stuff that I'm going to sit back someday when I'm, old and decrepit or older <laughs> and more decrepit and you know i'm gonna i every time i look at that stuff i just grin year to year you know and you know memories pop up or you know things that my granddaughter did when she was two or three and yeah you know, just put a perpetual smile on my face you know it's fun to watch them grow up and develop their own personalities and and uh I can't go over to my I can't go over to Tater's house. I can't walk in the door without being ambushed by, you know, uh nerf guns. He's usually got a fort built with a blanket over the footstool laying prone and lets me have it as soon as I walk into the door and it's on. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Great memories. Yeah. yeah. Well, well What else do you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I I was gonna say if I want to be respectful of your time, if there's anything we haven't covered, uh, let me know. Yeah, you know, you 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 touched on the Charles Alzheimer thing. That I don't know that Charles actually was the inventor of that five stages of hunting. You know, the different stages of the hunter. Actually, in, in you know, in kind of prepping for this this uh, podcast is I just Googled it up and actually back in the seventies, it was uh, Dr. Robert Norton and a Dr. Robert Jackson at the university of Wisconsin who were doing a study on a thousand deer hunters, thousand deer hunters that they were, you know, researching in Wisconsin. So I think that that's kind of where the roots of it was. And Charles Alzheimer was uh, of course a big contributor to deer and deer hunting magazine. And he probably wrote about it and, and, Oh, okay. and probably got credit for it, but Norton and Jackson were actually the ones that kind of coined these five stages. And there's been several other hunters that, or several other journalists that have, um, you know, the most recent one was, uh, I think, 2014 or 2017. Somebody wrote about the five stages too. So it's been, you know, it's 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 been touched on by several different. Um, you know, outdoor writers and stuff, but it, it's worth, you know, it's worth the review every couple of years and kind of, you know, put things in perspective, kind of where we are in, in our personal 
you know, hunting stages and that sort of thing. And, you know, when I read through it, I certainly see where I was in each of those stages and I can see where I, where I'm shifting from one into the next. There's, you know, there's, there's five, but I can see where I was at three and then three and a half and then four and now like maybe four and a half moving in more into the fives and, and there may be, you know, there's no strict order that these got to go in. You know, like when I, I kind of was in the stage four maybe with my whitetail hunting when I started doing my elk hunting and moose hunting and that sort of thing, and I kind of reverted back into some of the others, you know, where I was like, I don't know how many times I'm going to be able to go elk hunting. I don't know how many elk times I'm going to be able to go moose hunting. Yeah. And maybe I was in a shooter or you know, well, uh, limiting out, tagging out stage in, in some of those hunts. So. Real, real quick, Tony, let's let's list these five here. I have them pulled up off mm-hmm. of Charles' website here. The five stages of a hunter. The first one is the shooter stage, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's pretty much I have to shoot something to be accomplished. The, well, just, yeah, just getting a shot or having opportunities, yep. even if you're not successful, that's kind of where that is, yeah. Okay, so... I'll I'll name the stage and you tell me what what it means. The second one here is the limiting out stage, kind of obvious. Yep. Okay. Yep. And that's where seeing and, and getting shots isn't any longer good enough. You're, you you want to fill tags and you it's not enough to fill one tag. You're trying to get your limit. You're trying to tag out, and uh, you know it's more than just being a hunter. It's more about pro- proving to yourself and to your buddies and stuff that you're a skilled hunter and, and that. When you go out hunting, that you're going to come home with game. Okay. Uh, number three would be the trophy stage. Mm-hmm. Yep. Where opportunities and quantities are replaced by, you know, uh, more selectivity. You know, where quality trumps quality, and you know, we're we're more confident as hunters in, uh, you know, in our skills, uh, our killing abilities, and that sort of thing, and we're now we start moving into maybe, you know, targeting more mature animals or maybe bigger antlers or that sort of thing uh, become more important uh, than, you know, that limiting out stage. And we understand that, you know, that a, a, a moving into that stage is going to mean maybe less punch tags and um, there's more planning, uh, more prep, more skill, more patience, persistence is required in that stage, typically. Okay. Uh, number four would be the method stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, trophies are still important in this stage um, for whatever you consider a trophy. Uh, how you take it becomes more important. Um, typically, we start restricting ourselves more. We add more challenge. That might be we might go from a, Oh, we might go from a compound bowl, maybe go to a recurve or a long bowl. We may go from, um, you know, shooting a shotgun to maybe going to a muzzleloader or maybe going to a handgun, you know, something that we're providing more challenge to ourselves. Uh, you know, it's not just about taking game, uh, but only a trophy it usually means fewer tags filled again and is, and, uh, which is understood and expected. Okay, and then uh, the fifth and final stage is the sportsman stage. Yep, and I'm kind of between the two right now. 
personally, and the sportsman stage is where you kind of you you have a very clear understanding of the previous four stages of funding. Uh, you remember fondly about each each of those stages in your life. Um, there's no urgency to take game anymore. That you know that the trophies on your wall, um, you know that they're they're not so much trophies anymore as what they are. They're they're just fond you know reminders and memories of of you know those those uh, what you accomplished in those other stages. Uh, it's a total hunting experience now. It's you know there's higher rewards. You still are gonna, you're still skilled. And planning and prep and stuff like that are important, but just being out, uh, time with family and friends is becoming much more important. I, I know it is with me. I really relish my time in the woods, of course, with Tater and my buddies, uh, sharing deer camps and, and, uh, you know, trips to abroad. Um, and, you know, you just soak it all in. It happens more often. And, uh, and you're also getting a much stage three. You're starting to move into that conservation ethic where you're going, okay, you know, um, that's where that conservation mindset really starts to take root and grows through stage four. But now in stage five, it, it's really starting to become important. Where you're thinking about legacy and what you're going to leave to the next generations and. Maybe you're more involved with conservation organizations. Uh, you know, if, if not physically, at least, you know, supporting that sort of stuff. I know I, I can, I'm in a stage in my life now where I can give more to, you know, of my, of my, uh, means to QDMA and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and the backcountry's, you know, hunters and fishermen and, you know, having a more of a conservation foundation in your in that stage of your hunting very interesting uh i I think these are extremely relatable obviously they were done on a study of deer hunters so that makes sense and you you say you're somewhere between four and five tony yeah but you know but when it comes to you know some of these other species i'm hunting you know um i'm not interested in going out and shooting a year and a half old elk um, you know, spike bull or something like that. But if a two or three year old bull presents, I'm going to take him. But by yeah. the same token, I hunt in an area that's got a healthy population, and I love elk meat. And I've got two bulls on the wall, and uh, the first cow that presents is getting it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, you know, I'm I'm interested when it comes to elk hunting. I'm interested in filling that tag. I want to fill that tag, and um. You know, my terrible experience, I wasn't sure I'd ever get another opportunity. I, you know, it was, I was kind of into the methodology. I went up there with my bow and, uh, ended up the only shots I got were with a rifle. And I had some opportunities and wasn't very proficient with the rifle. It was a borrowed rifle and we had some, we had a lot of fun and, and, uh, I ended up shooting my moose. I took my bow to shoot my moose. And it was, you know, for a number of reasons, it wasn't the right time of year. And, you know, the opportunities to get tight on a moose with a bow weren't there. But I ended up shooting my moose at 250 yards with my 30-06 and was tickled to death to do it. Nice. And, uh, 
So, and I'm not, you know, and I don't look at it as a, at my odd six as a gimme. You know, it was the first I hadn't shot it for, gosh, 15 years before I picked it up to get it ready for that moose hunt. So it wasn't like it was, it was going to be a gimme. You know, it was kind of revisiting, you know, past methods that I had that I'd used. And uh, I'd really been primarily an archery hunter. Uh, most of my, probably 90% of the, you know, my hunting and definitely 100% of my preference has been archery, but I was perfectly content to take my moose and my mule deer with a rifle. Very nice. And Brian, kicking over to you, what stage of the uh, five stages do you think you're at in life? Oh, I'm a mess, man. I'm I'm all over the place. I'm, it's pretty fluid for me. I mean, situational too i mean obviously five is very important that's that's what you and i are doing with this podcast i take a lot of pride in keeping these recordings and uh videos and everything else we're doing for the habitat podcast for conservation i take that very seriously and i enjoy that a lot so i think we do a lot in number five um number four you know i you know my back history of going back into traditional archery and then that wasn't enough i had to learn to build my own bows and arrows and shot a bunch of game animals with that kind of equipment so or even in the duck blind you know sometimes i get that lust and i want to limit out too so that, that, that's a tough one for me but i try to get into all of them probably if i'm being honest yeah yeah i think uh i think i can relate to you there too i think uh I'm kind of a, a mess as well. I think um, the shoot the, the first stage, shooter stage, I definitely wanna wanna shoot something because I, I love eating wild game. So maybe that's not shooter stage, but to me it looks like maybe by the, de- the definition here that I definitely want to harvest something. Um, I don't want to go buy beef if I don't have to. Um, Limiting out stage. Never been good at limiting out, so I'm going to skip that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've maybe tagged out in Michigan a couple times in my life. Not not that many. Um, trophy stage, I've, I've probably spent a little time here. I like to chase a, a more mature deer, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I pretty much usually only hold out for, for at least a two and a half, or try to go three and a half, but sometimes it's my adrenaline gets the best of me. Uh, I just like I just like shooting deer. So uh, number four, the method. I'm uh, I'm trying to understand deer behavior a lot more. Um, I love archery. Definitely big into archery, but I'm, I also have the what would you call it the camaraderie, the tradition of, of the Michigan gun season. My dad and my brother kind of ingrained in me, so method is not my method of hunting is not always as important to me as just getting out in God's creation out there, but mm-hmm. number five for sure. I mean, I can see I don't think I'm at number five in terms of this point in my life. I should already be at number five, but I can relate to it a lot. Um, yeah. So maybe I am kind of all over the board as well. I I just think that the the availability of information and you know um, 
being being a the, the, that conservation mindset and understanding with the more intense management philosophies now and understanding that you know that uh, you know that nice deer aren't an accident you know they don't happen by chance but you know just just knowing that gives you more of a conservation mindset so you know if that as far as I'm concerned if that leap, leapfrogs a guy up a, a notch or two and he's and he's happy with that, you know, in his hunting experience. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. Yep. You know, I've been very active with quality deer management now for almost two decades, and you know, it was it just fit the niche for me. It was yeah. the perfect organization at the perfect time for me where I was in my life. You know, creeping up, I was almost almost forty, and uh, you know, I was really starting to look into maybe getting into commemorative bucks and maybe becoming a scorer and that kind of appeal, but it really was like, well, you know, that's dealing with dead deer all the time and just ogling antlers, and, and I really just wanted to, wanted more, and uh, quality deer management came around at the, at the perfect time, so. Well, you've been a, a pioneer for sure here in, in the state. I know there's there's been others, but as far as I've been paying attention, uh, you know, the last decade at least um you know, you've been you've been fighting the fight here and and back to when i first met you and heard about you over with uh rob and dan at that field producers tv show thing we kind of got rolling with for a few years there uh been following you ever since tony and you, you've been out there uh like i said fighting the good fight for the betterment of the herd um, well I, I i appreciate you acknowledging that 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 means a lot you know i mean it's uh sometimes you wonder <laughs> you know, yep. yeah, you know, some of the phone calls I've taken and the the private messages I've gotten, I've kind of questioned it, and, and uh, I'm not insensitive to guys, you know, that you know they say, well, who who are you to tell me what's a trophy? I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to dictate to anybody what's a trophy, um, but I certainly don't think that protecting some year and a half old bucks is trophy management. I just think that it's good gear management and something that, you know, in this state at least, that uh, we haven't put enough emphasis on how important it is, how important analyst deer harvest is. And um, I think that we've kind of discounted discounted both sexes when it comes to whitetails and haven't done a really good job of promoting proper harvest to both of them. So. And that's what I've just that's what I've been trying to do is just say it's important to shoot those. Don't shoot them all. But it's important to shoot some and it is and there's value in protecting some bucks. Yeah, well yeah, just your time spent and, and your your views. I mean, just the time you have in your own personal time and money into this for uh, your last I, I guess what twenty years or, or more. Um, it's just it, it says a lot. So I hope to be able to to contribute as much or or a portion someday. Uh, so just let you know that it isn't going unnoticed. There's a lot of guys who are following along, and and hopefully we introduce a lot more with this episode here. So yeah, yeah. I I love seeing I love seeing guys like you doing these podcasts. And, you know I'm proudest punch and neck for 
you know, what he's doing with his habitat hook business. And, you know, there's so many young guns, you know, Nick's buddy, Isaac, you know, he's does great things in his property. And, and, uh, you know, there's just, I really wish that, 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 that what's, happening now was more prevalent when I was at that stage but you know I sure had a I sure had a lot of fun hunting and and uh had opportunities and success so no regrets you know and like I say you know it's deer management's fluid and and it's going to change from year to year and I like seeing guys like you that are involving your kids in in hunting and filming and in in habitat work and you know, Nick's doing that with his son, and Isaac's doing that with his kids. Like, I've seen it with all, you know, Corey Francis with his oh, yeah. kids, and Scott Homrich. I mean, his whole, that whole Munchkin Acres there that he's got there behind Beautiful. his house. Is, Beautiful. You know, just, that's all for his kids, and there's that, you know, that to me makes it all worthwhile, is that. The, the conservation ethic is just as important as getting the kids out behind the gun and getting, you know, wiping, smearing a little blood on their cheek, you know, and teaching them, teaching them that conservation ethic is, is really just very important and something that I'm very proud of, uh, my friends for, you know, promoting into their kids. So, Tony, if anybody wants to, uh, reach out to you or get a hold of you or find you, What's the best way they should do that? <laughs> Come to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in Florida right now, but I was this morning. But it, I, I, I love talking to folks about this stuff, and um, they can they can shoot me an email if they want. I'm on Facebook under my name, Tony Smith. Um, and uh, if they want to reach out to me on Facebook or uh, my email address is QDMA, M-A-N, QDMA man at Yahoo. Real easy to, you know, you for anybody that's kind of a, a deer nut to, to remember. And uh, I'm not going to give out my phone number, but if somebody wants to talk and they want to talk on the phone, I'm, I do a lot of that too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time tonight. You know, Brian and I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, I'm sure the listeners will learn a thing or ten out of this one for sure. So, thank well, you. I hope I didn't talk to you off too much. Edit away. I love what you guys are doing, and, and uh, it's fun to hear my buddies on your podcast too. I was actually listening to your last one with Nick when when you called. So. Uh, I got some catching up to do where I don't have the opportunity to listen as much as I would like, but it's fun, uh, you know, listening to some of them too. And, and, uh, you do a great job interviewing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I try, I'm obsessed. I love this stuff. Uh, like you and, and like Brian, we're, we are quote unquote deer nuts. So might, might be, uh, might be to uh, my fault, but it is what it is. So, <laughs> Well, keep the main, keep the main thing the main thing, man. Wife and family is uh, number one, and and I had a hard time. I had a hard time with that one time, and I had to get a checkup from the neck up uh, at one time, and you know reprioritize, and it made a big difference in my life. And also, that's when I started becoming more successful. 
Interesting. Good point. So, you know, it was when I when I was obsessing over deer, I started ignoring the things that were really important in life. And when I got when I found that balance, things changed. So, God knows what's best for us. Great, great points, Tony. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a great night and uh, enjoy yourself down in Florida next time you're down there. Yep. All right. Good night, guys. Keep going. Nice Thanks, talking Tony. to you, Brian. All right. Good night, Jared. You too. Good night, Tony. Thank you. You bet. Thank you so much, Tony, for coming on the Habitat Podcast. That was an awesome episode. We really appreciate you coming on. I hope to uh, maybe be walleye fishing with you soon, my friend. Well, guys, thanks again for tuning in. We have uh, all of our hats and T-shirts up on the website right now, along with some decals. If you use the discount LOYAL10, that's the word LOYAL10, you get 10% off any order on the HabitatPodcast.com website. For any new listeners, that is where all of our podcast episodes are located. We're also at Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, Pandora, coming soon. Guys, we're everywhere you can find a podcast. So be sure to check us out and leave us a great review. Say hi, send us a message. Uh, tell us what you like about the show, what you don't like. You know, Post some pictures on our Facebook page. We, we share those and talk about those with the other fellow Habitat Managers in our uh, you know Becoming Better Habitat Manager following. So, guys, thanks so much. Once again, I always say it. Thank you, but I love you, and I wish uh, you know we keep growing this thing more and more. So really do, do appreciate it. Let's thank our sponsors. We have Packer Max Cult of Packers, The Hunt Wise Hunting App, Killer Food Plots, 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, and Morse Nursery. Please let our sponsors know uh, that, that we love them and that you're looking at their stuff. We really appreciate their support. We will be back. The next two episodes are on fire, guys. We have uh, a couple great guests, so I'm going to leave them anonymous for now. Keep you uh, excited about it coming up. So tune in. I hope you guys stay safe out in the woods. Wear your uh, chaps. Wear your chainsaw helmet. Wear all the safety equipment you can. And, you know, hang in there. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you for tuning in as we become better habitat managers. Take care. in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app.